All right, we're in our turn to Second Samuel 24, in the last chapter of Second Samuel. What I consider to be the toughest chapter in all of First and Second Samuel to teach, without a doubt. And if Stephen prayed that I would under we would understand the word, I've been praying that all week. Let me understand Second Samuel 24, in the parallel passage, First Chronicles 21. Book of Second Samuel starts out with God's judgment on Saul, the first king of Israel. In that chapter, chapter 1, Saul dies. The last chapter of 2 Samuel uh, speaks of, ends, ends, ends the book with David, the second king of Israel, being judged, and along with the nation of Israel. But the second king of Israel does what the first king of Israel fails to do. He repents of his sin. We must learn to do the same. And uh, tonight, as we look in this chapter, we're, we're going to observe David's sin, David's repentance and David's atonement. First of all, let's look at David's sin. That's in verses 1 through 9. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 says, Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with them, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people that, it, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the Lord, or presence of the king, rather, to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aurora, on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and toward Jazer, they came to Gilead and to the land of uh, Tahihoshi. Wow. And they came to Danjan and, and around the Sidon, and they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. They went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the, throughout the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now, if you're a thoughtful reader of the Bible, and I hope that you are, you're going to have questions arising in your mind as you read through the Scripture, as I get texts all the time, Mike does, I'm sure, out of the blue when you're busy doing something else from guys asking you impossible questions about the Bible always. Hey, Mark, when did God create the world? You know, things like that out of the blue. And if you're reading 2 Samuel 24, you're definitely going to have questions arising in your mind. That is not an unusual reaction to this chapter. Here are some of the questions you're going to be thinking about as we go through this chapter. Number one, why is the Lord angry with Israel? Number two, when was the Lord first angry with Israel? Who or what incited David against Israel? Uh, when was, uh, or rather, if, if it is God that incited David against Israel, does, it, does that mean God caused David to sin? What's the big deal about numbering the people? Is that such a great crime? Why is this a problem? So there are questions galore at the beginning of this passage, and we'll try to, I'll do my best to try to deal with these questions, and, and we'll teach as we go along here. But trust me, that in itself is a great challenge. First of all, why is the Lord angry with Israel? It says in verse 1, now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now he, the Lord is really mad. 
he's burning with anger. That's a, that term is, means he's hot. He's hot with anger. Why is he angry with Israel? Answer, it doesn't say in this chapter. It doesn't say in verse 1. Now, if we go to the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21, there we can no doubt find the answer. But if you go to that account, it also does not say why the Lord is initially angry with Israel. So, the fact of the matter is we don't know why he's angry with Israel. We do know this. We know he's angry, and his anger is directed at Israel. We know that for sure. And I believe that includes David the king because David leads the nation, Israel, and also he will be involved in the sin later mentioned in this chapter. Now, this anger is prior to David numbering the people, where it says God is angry. By the way, the, the, the Lord never gets angry for no reason at all. He's not moody like we are. He doesn't fly off the handle like we might. He doesn't do any of that at all. He, if we offend his holiness, then he's going to get angry. Uh, and so his anger is always just. His anger is always a reaction to evil of some kind. His anger is always a reaction to um, uh, injustice. Or maybe someone has broken his commandments. Every time the Bible uses this phrase, the anger of the Lord burned or something to that effect, it's because of serious sin. For example, in Exodus 32, it says uh, when they made the golden calf, the anger of the Lord burned against those people for that and other references like that. Now, back in chapter 21, if you remember back in chapter 21, the Lord was angry with Israel uh, it says, it doesn't say he was angry, but he brought a famine on the land, obviously expressing his displeasure and anger, very angry as a matter of fact. He brings the famine on the land for at least three years because, and, the Lord, and David says, Lord, what, what's going on here? And he says, Saul committed a sin when he was alive against the Gibeonites, and that's got to be appeased. And so I sent this famine. And then in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. Why? Because this guy tried to steady the ark when, it, when, it, when the oxen stumbled. And he touched it, and God's anger burned against him, and he killed him. And so the Lord always has a reason for his anger. His anger is just. Only we don't know what that is right here. We don't know what happened. So what do we to conclude about this particular question? And, and that is this. The Lord gets angry over sin. That's what we conclude. We don't even have to know what sin it is. He takes sin seriously. He never takes it lightly. You never see the Lord taking sin lightly through the Bible. He's always taking it seriously. Now, many times the Bible uses the expression, the Lord's anger burned against sin or something like that. It's always the same reaction from God. He always uh, reacts in a way that he, it, shows, it shows his hatred for sin. He hates sin. And if we hated sin like he did, we would be inflamed about it as well. Instead of the attitude we normally have, oftentimes our anger, by the way, is because we're mad at other people's sin. They've sinned, and so we're mad about it, but we don't get the same anger. It doesn't seem to be there when we have our own sin to deal with. So we need to learn our hate, to hate our sin so much because it incurs the Lord's displeasure. Second question. First one didn't get answered, by the way, did it? Second one. What or who incited David against Israel? Look at your NASB translation, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them. It incited David against them. What is it? I love the way the nasty guys did this one. It is the anger of the Lord in this case. It's the anger of the Lord. And it, it, let me ask you a question. Is it the anger of the Lord that's inciting David to sin? Is that what it is? The cause is the anger of the Lord? Isn't that the same thing as saying the Lord himself? 
incited David. David, it can't be just the Lord's emotion that incited him. It's actually the Lord. All other English translations, by the way, put it this way. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against Israel. The bottom line is we can't get around the fact that 2 Samuel 24.1 says it's the Lord who incited David against Israel. That's what it says in this chapter. Now, we run into a problem here, though. We go to the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21, and Stephen read, and it says there, verse 1, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Uh-oh, we got a problem already here. So, now how do we answer this question? Who incited, or who moved David against Israel? Was it the Lord, or was it Satan? Which one did it? It says both. By the way, the word moved in, 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 in the one uh, verse, and the word incited in the other verse is the same Hebrew word. In one reference, the Lord is said to move David against Israel, and in the other, Satan is said to be the one to move David against Israel. Now, somehow these verses work together, because we know the Word of God is, is harmonious and it's unified and it works together. It's not contradiction. It doesn't contradict each other. Somehow that happens here. Now, if you think about it, this is where we have to go to the entire Scripture to find out and, and what it teaches about these things uh, to find out an answer here. There's a similarity between this passage, for example, in Job chapter 1 and 2, although not exactly the same. In those chapters, there's a similar idea. Satan wanted to get after Job, but, he, but the Lord had to give him permission to do that, and, and the Lord did give Satan permission, and what happened? Satan tore right into Job. Uh, there's, almost, there's also a similar thought in Luke 22, when Satan demanded or asked permission from God, uh, Jesus said to Peter, look, Peter, Satan has asked permission that he sift you like wheat. He wants to go after you. He wants to get you. And what happened later? Peter denied Christ. Satan went after him. Now, we don't have many details in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. So how are we to view all of this in light of what the Scripture teaches on the whole about Satan, about the Lord, about sin? And it's just this. The Lord is sovereign over all events. He's sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over the evil one. He's not the cause of evil. The Lord's not. The Lord doesn't cause evil. He doesn't promote evil. Uh, he has nothing to do with evil, and he's, he's holy. He doesn't tempt people to sin. James chapter 1 says, James 1.13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't say that. That's not how it is. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But God is sovereign over all things, including evil. He's sovereign over it. When Joseph sold his brothers into slavery, was the Lord sitting idly by wondering what was going to be the outcome of all this? Now what's going to happen? He's doing evil here. What's happening? No, he didn't do that. Genesis 50 says, Joseph says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So God used that. Acts chapter 2 says that wicked men killed Jesus. But it was God that predetermined the cross. God, God put it into, into action. Wicked men carried out the plan. They carried out in their wickedness. That was their, their, their motivation. God's motivation was that Christ would die for sin. The first thing to note concerning 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 is that God is sovereign over the situation. It can be said that the Lord incited David uh, to, against Israel because he is the one who is ultimately behind it. God's behind all, the, all, the, all things. He's sovereign over all things, and that's how Israel would have seen it. Yet he can do so without damaging his holy character. Amen. 
Because Satan is the instrument that is used to carry out the plan. It works together. Now, we'd have to go into the mind of God himself to figure all this out 100%. But we can see what the scripture teaches here. Satan is the instrument to carry out evil. Uh, Satan is the instrument through which God incited David. God is free of sin and all of us. He's free of sin. He's no, he can't be charged or accused with sin. By the way, Satan's always on the attack against believers, is he not? That's what he does. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be on the alert uh, for your adversary. The devil prowls about seeking someone to, de- like a lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's always at this business. That's what he does. And what Satan makes a living at, God may use for his purposes, ultimately. Now, I know this is hard to understand. Some of you may be, you know, you know, having, look, I spent the last, I don't know how long, with my head, you know, spinning in circles over this chapter. I'll be honest with you. But this is good for us to think about. Not only necessary to think about, it's good for us to think about. It's called meditation on the scripture, to see how the Lord is, is working and, and, and things, and how he, he carries out his plans. The Lord can use Satan to further his ends. That's the bottom line. He, he does that. He can use evil nations like Babylon to carry out judgment against his people, right? He can use the evil plans of men like Joseph's brothers to accomplish his purposes. He can put Christ to death on the cross in such a way that Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord to crush him. And yet at the same time, Acts 2 says he was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. So 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 are not in conflict with one another. They're harmonious. Third question, since the Lord was already angry angry with Israel at the beginning of the passage, then why not just judge them? Why compound this with further sin? Why not just judge them then and there, as he did in chapter 21? Verse 1 says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, against the nation of Israel, it says. Okay, why not just go after them then and get them and punish them then and there? Why magnify this situation with further sin? Now, I have my only answer to this is, and this is probably not going to be a satisfactory, satisfactory answer to you. I'm willing to admit that. But I think, and I, as you, and I think you can see this in the Scripture. Sometimes the Lord judges people for their sin by intensifying sin, and thus the judgment will be intensified as well. People who are rebellious against the Lord are sometimes allowed to continue in the rebellion. And, and, and that rebellion is prompted by Satan and by their own sinful nature. God, again, uh, innocent in all of this. These people commit further sins, more heinous sins, sins that are deeper and worse and horrible, and they incur God's wrath on a whole new level. So his judgment becomes greater. And I think the Lord must have really been displeased with, really displeased with Israel to do it this way, to seal their judgment like this. Here's an example, Saul. Saul, Saul disobeyed God repeatedly, again and again. We saw this as we went through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Repeated, repeatedly disobeyed God, and the Lord sent what? An evil spirit to torment him, right, it says. Of all things, the Lord sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. And, and when that happened, it, that would throw Saul into a rage. And then in turn, he would commit further sin, God not being responsible for all this, Saul being responsible, but that's what happened. 1 Samuel 18.10 is an example. It says, It came about that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house. This is the guy that's already disobedient to God. He's already messed this whole thing up. God's already said, you're, no longer, you're not going to be king. One day, I've rejected you from being king. 
I'm done with you. You can, you're going to carry, you're going to finish out your term, and that's going to be it for you. No dynasty for you to carry on. This guy's been evil all along, and then he sends, God sends this evil spirit upon Saul. It comes upon, it comes upon him, and he raves in the midst of the house, and while David was playing the harp with his hand, and there was a spear in Saul's hand. Remember how we talked about how Saul loved to have the spear close by always? And he, he takes the spear and hurls it at David and tries to kill him. He's compounding his sin further in all this. Sin, a man who's sinning against God, God sends an evil spirit to him. His sin is compounded further, and his judgment is compounded further. That's an example. Another example is 2 Thessalonians 2.11. It says it talks about people in the future who are wicked and deceived. and It says they're deceived by Satan in the end times. And it says there in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, for this reason, God will, God will send them a deluding influence of all things. That's what it says. God will send them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. They have, their sin has been compounded. Their judgment has been compounded by God. Another example. Stephen said it this morning, the parables in Matthew 13. Uh, given to a rebellious Israel, an Israel that had rejected God to the point in Matthew 12. Uh, that they said say, that Jesus does these works by the power of Satan. They rejected Christ and they're rebellious. And so the Lord sends this, these parables to conceal the truth, as Stephen said this morning, conceal the truth from those who didn't want it. And their judgment is compounded. And maybe that's what's going on in 2 Samuel 24. And then another question, what sin exactly did David commit? What's the sin? It says he moved... Uh, he was moved to number Israel and, judge, and Judah, rather. Now, First Chronicles 21 says that that count took place from Beersheba all the way to Dan. Beersheba's farthest north, southern, basically southern point in Israel. Dan, the northernmost point in Israel, is the idea from south to north in all the land of Israel. This census took place. And as you read the chapter further, it qualifies it by saying it was the military men that were counted. Now, David either wanted to know how many men were in the army or he's preparing for war, one of the two. And so the first thing we find ourselves asking is, what's wrong with that? You, know, you read the chapter, David numbered the people, and you think to yourself, as you're, you, know, you, you being thoughtful readers of the Bible, you think to yourself, what's the problem with this? And uh, why is this a sin? It seems pretty harmless. I mean, Israel in their, in their history had times where they took a census. Where the military wasn't all that big of a deal. Oh, it doesn't seem to be all that evil, but why is this sinful? Again, we have to say, as we look at this, we have less than a definite answer given to us here. It's just not spelled out. Now, there's four views, basically, that are put forth to answer this question. I normally don't do this, throw out a bunch of views, but I'm going to do it tonight because of the circumstances here, because it's not a definite answer. Let me just give you something to think about here. The first one view that's put out is this. It's based on Exodus chapter 30, verse 12. This is a very interesting uh, verse here. It says, when you t Exodus 30, 12, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each, of, each one of them <coughs> shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. It's going to give a ransom. It goes on to say that ransom was a half a shekel. And, and by doing this, the people, atonement could be made for each person. And if they didn't do this, they didn't give this half shekel, a plague would break out. That's what it says. Take a census. That, you say, is, is that what happened here? And uh, 
in 2 Samuel 24? Is that what happened? Is that why there's a plague that's being sent here? Well, that sounds great, but it, it, 2 Samuel says nothing about it at all. It doesn't say that. It says nothing about, oh, well, we didn't give the ransom money. That's why. Let's go back to Exodus. It doesn't say that. Could have happened? Possibly. Another view, the most popular one, says David's motivation was based on pride. This is all about pride. David is proud of his army. He's proud of his military. Those guys were an awesome fighting force. We saw that in 2 Samuel 23, no doubt. He's proud of all this. He's trusting in God. He's trusting in the military now more than he is in God. And Joab's words in verse 3 could lend support to that idea. Look at Joab's words in verse 3. Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while, the, while you can still see this, but why do you delight in doing this thing? You know, that's, so, so that is a possibility, although in 2 Samuel 23, um, or 22, David says that, bit, that long psalm about the, the song that he writes, how he trusts in God and, and, he, and he asks God to rescue him out of military defeats again and again and those kind of things. So it seems kind of strange based on what we've read already about David, but that's the most popular view. Third view says that the census was taken because David was planning a military conquest that one writer says was ill-conceived and beyond the limits of God's approval. Maybe they were, they, they were staging a battle against an enemy and God didn't want him to do that, and yet David insisted on it. However, there's nothing mentioned here about a battle against anybody. There's nothing about preparation for war against anybody. So I don't know. Fourth view, 1 Chronicles 27. Turn to 1 Chronicles 27, 23, verse 23 and verse 24. You can read this later. This is something for you to look at later. 1 Chronicles 27, verses 23 and 24. It says concerning this census David took, it says David did not count those 20 years of age and under because the Lord said, had said he would multiply the Israel as the stars of heaven. And when they took a census, it was to be for men who were 20 years of age and older, not under. And so it says there in 1 Chronicles 27, David didn't number people that were 20 years of age and under. However, some think that David started, this says this because David started to count those 20 years of age and under, and then he stopped realizing this is wrong. And that's why God judged him, because David is denying the promise of God to multiply Israel like the stars of heaven. Is that the reason? It doesn't say that either there. Second Samuel and First Chronicles do not explicitly lay out why the census was wrong. The typical explanation, as I said earlier, is that David got proud of his army. He was putting his trust in them as opposed to the Lord. Uh, the, the bottom line is ultimately we're left to speculation on this as to what the sin exactly was. And I think, again, that we have to realize that in the eyes of God, whatever it was, it was a great sin. It was a great sin. And we have to be content with that. Now, one thing is for sure, Joab knew this was wrong. He knew it was wrong, and later on David admits it also. Joab's commanded against his will to, to do this. He doesn't want to do this. It's, by the way, it's actually command in verse 3 where uh, he says, David says, register the people that I may know the number. He's commanding. This is an order, Joab. I said, go do this thing, even though you don't want to. Register the people. That, that means to, to pass uh, in review, to muster the people, almost as if you're going to war. Now, some even think that Joab is conducting some kind of a draft here. And it could, be well, it could well be that David is starting to trust in the strength of his military more and more, which means he's trusting in God less and less. 
Chapter 23 does speak of great warriors. We talked about the mighty men of David. How one guy was so great he went down in a pit and killed a lion on a snowy day, it says. Other guys killed, they were giant slayers. Now, chapter 23 says that God was, that was because the Lord brought about that salvation. It says that twice. We talked about that. But maybe David grew proud, as many people think he did. And there's no doubt that pride will bring you low. We know that. But again, we don't have a definite answer. Another question. I'm just getting some of these, some things out of the way. And other things, we're, we're learning some things here, but... Another question, why are there some different numbers between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21? You're going to ask these questions anyway, so I'm going to try to answer some, okay? I know you're going to answer, and I know you're going to look at 1 Chronicles 21. How come Mark didn't say this? Why are there some different numbers between 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21? First of all, 2 Samuel 24, 9 records that Israel, look at verse 9, that in Israel, it says, in Israel there were 800,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah there were 500,000 men. Got it? 800,000 and 500,000. Go to 1 Chronicles account. Verse 5 gives the account for Israel, and it says, uh, for Israel there was, a 100, there was rather 1,100,000, and for Judah there was 470,000. Why is there a difference between those numbers? Now let me give you one possible explanation, and there are a few that people have, have ventured. By the way, sometimes with numbers, you don't always know the, the exact answer in the Bible. And I wouldn't worry about that because sometimes God has just not given us the reason. 2 Samuel 24, 9 says, there were in Israel, careful reading, <clears throat> there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men. 1 Chronicles 21, 5 says, it, it says that and, and all Israel, puts the word all in there, and all Israel, there were 1,100,000 soldiers. It's a difference of 300,000. Why is that? Well, in First Corinthians, Chronicles, First Chronicles twenty-seven, we looked at it earlier. There is, there are what has been called a regular organized army. That's 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 listed. That army consists of two hundred eighty-eight thousand soldiers, almost three hundred thousand. It could be the bigger list in, in Chronicles is including these stand, this normal organized army. That would bring the list, the total to to one uh, uh, to nearly one hundred one million one hundred thousand. You had 800,000. Where's Rob at? I need a calculator. You had 800,000 plus 288,000. You get 1,888,000. Round that off and you get 1,100,000 soldiers. You say, well, let's just round it off. Yeah, but there's times in the Bible when the Bible rounds off numbers. You've seen it earlier in the Bible. You've seen it in uh, uh, Genesis and Exodus. You've seen it elsewhere. Sometimes the Bible rounds off numbers. 400 years, 430 years. Different number, different times. So maybe it's a rounded off number. Why 500,000 in 2 Samuel and 470,000 in 1 Chronicles? Again, maybe the numbers are rounded off. Okay, now, some of you are puzzled by what I just said, and some of you might have questions. We can talk about that later, but for now, let's move on. I'm just trying to get the housekeeping duties out of the way right now, okay? Because you're going to ask these questions. One more number I'm going to mention now. 2, Chronic, 2 Samuel 24, 13 says... Shall, here's a puzzler for you. <laughs> Shall seven years of famine come into your land? First Chronicles 21.12 says, calls it three years of famine. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, says three, number three. First Chronicles 21 says the number three. It's usually taken that seven is possibly a human copyist error. 
not God's error, but I said a human copy, copying manuscripts. So we have a lot of questions here. And we don't have answers for everything. We don't have answers for everything. In fact, there's questions I didn't even raise because of time constraints. We'd be here all night answering questions. Let me just say this. Sometime, sometimes the Bible doesn't give us answers to all our questions. We get a lot of questions around here about theology. We don't always get answers in the Bible to the questions that we're asking. God wants us to know certain things, and he leaves it at that. But our curiosity sometimes gets the best. Now, it's good to ask questions of the Bible. We should do that. We're asking doing observations. Sometimes our curiosity gets the best of us. Sometimes we don't know an answer because we haven't studied enough. And you may find out an answer on this chapter five years from now. I don't know. I may find out something. But we all need to study the scriptures and all find out all we can. But however, sometimes this can lead to an unedifying experience. Some people are always asking difficult questions. The same, have you noticed this, Mike? Different, same questions again and again. They're always asking everybody, go around the church asking everybody the same question because they're not satisfied with the answer the Bible gives. That's the reason a lot of times. They're not satisfied. But God is satisfied that he said enough. We're not satisfied that he said enough. And so if we continue discontented with what the Scripture says, we're sinning, ultimately. Imagine being discontented with what the Bible says. It doesn't say enough for me. I need to know more. Why? I want my curiosity satisfied. Isn't that usually the reason? There's a, there's a time and a place for asking honest questions of the Bible. Yes, to find out what it says. Right, Jimmy? Observation we talked about. There's another thing where we're just trying to satisfy our curiosity because we've got to know something because we're curious. Uh, there's mystery in the Bible. We'll never have all our questions answered we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust the Lord. We trust his word. And so we should do that. Now, I felt the need to spend some time addressing these issues because I know, and I was talking to a guy the other day, and he said, what does it mean in 2 Samuel 24 when it says, I said, stop. <laughs> I said, I, I, I get it, man. We'll try to deal with some of those things on Sunday night, and for, for right now, let's move on. Let's not get lost in all this, okay? We're talking about David's sin, the first nine verses of 2 Samuel 24. And notice who it is who tries to stop David from sinning. His good friend Joab, right? Joab is a thorn in his side as far as David is concerned. But Joab is a great commander of the army, the great general. Joab is a great, is a great military general. David knows it. And so he's willing to live with the differences between them. But who is it that, and, and after David has slammed Joab a couple of times for not being so spiritual, now who is it that's warning David of sinning? Joab is. He says, don't do that. Look at verse 3 again. Uh, May the Lord my, our God add to the people a hundred times as many. Why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? He even takes delight in what he's doing. He takes pleasure in it. Don't do this thing. But David has the last word. And he, and he says, no, his command goes, you're going to do what I tell you to do. And Joab, who had the right advice for David, has to go and do what David says. So he travels all over the land in his wild goose chase, which is not only sinful, but it's a waste of time for 10 months almost. 10 months almost. And he said, I'm not so sure, by the way, knowing Joab, he didn't drag his feet through this whole process. First Chronicles 21.6 says this, that this whole business was abhorrent to Joab, it says. So abhorrent to Joab, he didn't even count Levi and Benjamin. He said, I'm not even going to do that. He counted everybody else, maybe. Even the numbers he gives, maybe, they're not even correct. Because Joab's doing this counting, and we don't know what Joab's thinking, because we know Joab's got a will of his own already from studying him already. So. But 
Joab is the only one in this account, this whole account, that tries to stop David from doing this. Now, let me tell you something. If a believer has been on sinning, it's our job to counsel him not to do that, not to go that direction. We must warn people against going the wrong direction. That is the right thing to do. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's the thing to do. We should stop people from going the wrong direction if they're going the direction away from God. And if you've been warned tonight, if you've already been, if you're pursuing some course of sinful uh, action and you've been warned against it, now would be a good time, the time to change direction. You know, you think about David. God made a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, this tremendous covenant. God uniquely blessed David, but now he's involved in another major sin. The last chapter of this book. As long as we're alive on this planet, we're going to have to deal with sin and with Satan. It doesn't matter if you're the greatest king in Israel, you're going to have to deal with it. Paul was aware of that. He said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he warned the Corinthian believers, he said this, I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve, by his, the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from simplicity and purity to Christ. We never get to the place in our lives where we can drop our guard against Satan. So David's sin. And then look at David's confession in verses 10 to 17. His confession and also judgment. It says, Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said in turn, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Will you flee three months before your foes? While they pursue you, or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I will, shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity of, and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, we have in, chapter, in verse 10, rather, uh, what somewhat of an analysis of repentance. Look at verse 10. First of all, when it comes to repentance, there's conviction of, over sin. It says David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. It literally says David's heart smote him, just nailed him. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he had done was wrong. He knew it. The only problem was it took him about 10 months to realize it. It says he was convicted of a sin after, uh, his heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. Now, in the case of David and Bathsheba in chapter 12, David didn't confess the sin at first. The, he was confronted. He had to be confronted by the prophet uh, Nathan in that case. 
Here he, can, he repents without confrontation, but 10 months, 10 months almost, 9 months and uh, 20 days I think it is. Let me ask you a question. How long does it take you to recognize your sin and to confess it? How long does it take you to do that, to realize you've committed sin against God and you need to confess it? Is, it, is your walk with God such that you are sensitive to sin and, and your consciousness is easily convicted? Or are you so spiritually dull that it takes you a long time? Have you got, gotten so complacent and lackadaisical in your, in your walk with God that spiritual, you're just dull spiritually? It took a while for the prodigal son, Luke 15, to realize he was going the wrong direction. But after he'd been in the pig slop for a while, it says in Luke 15, 17, it says he came to himself. Finally, he came to himself. He came to his senses, and he, and he said, I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And, and he's going to confess that as sin. But the first thing that happens in repentance is conviction. We're convicted of our sin. We're troubled in our heart about what we've done. And then secondly, there's confession. Conviction should lead to confession. David, and David, it does in David's case. First of all, he acknowledges the depth of his sin. It says here, David says, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. I know it's a great sin, Lord, not something minor. In chapter 12, when he finally confessed his sin, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. It's against him that I've sinned. And so David saw the evil of his sin. And then he acknowledged the folly of his sin. He said this, I have acted very foolishly. Word there means to be lacking in spiritual comprehension. He should have known better. David knew better, but he gave way to a foolish act. Don't we do the same thing? We know better, don't we? We know what's right and what's wrong. We know what evil is. We know what the word of God says, and yet we do things that go against all sound reason. We act foolishly and sin foolishly, as David did. And then David asked for pardon. Verse 10, he says, take away, literally cause to pass away, the iniquity of your servant. So David is asking God to forgive him. Now, there's a verse we quote often in the New Testament. We never tire of it, and we shouldn't tire of it. It's, thank God that it's, it's, David realized the mercies of the Lord. And here it is again, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who confess their sins will be forgiven by God. They truly confess their sins. because Why? Because of the faithful character of God. That's why. I believe David truly repents here, and we're taught by his example to do the same thing. But just because your sins, you've confessed your sins doesn't mean you're out of the clear. doesn't mean that everything is, is, is well now because there's always consequences to deal with, isn't there? As we've seen again and again throughout 2 Samuel, consequences to deal with from sin. Punishment must fit the crime. And in God's eyes, this was a great sin, and David even recognized it. So the Lord gave them, gives them three choices. You want famine? Remember back in chapter 21, you got famine? You want that again? You want to be running from your enemies, or do you want to have pestilence? In other words, we're going for choice. What choice, will it, what will it be? And David, what does David do? He rests upon the mercy of God, recognizing that God's mercies are great. That was the thing to do, I think. And so the Lord sends a pestilence, probably the, I'm guessing that, you know, it could have been worse for David, even though it was, it was bad as it was. I think the Lord even here was merciful. He sends a pestilence for three days, and 70,000 people are killed. Amazing, unbelievable. 70, 000, people point to David's greatest sin as David and Bathsheba and Uriah, maybe so. Maybe this was the greatest sin. 70,000 people die? 
Once again, in the life of David and the nation of Israel, sin takes a great, tremendous toll, as it always does. In some way, David took delight in numbering the people, whatever that means. But now, guess what? 70,000 of them are, have, are, are gone. They're, his army's been reduced now. If he wanted to rejoice in his army, it's been reduced. But the Lord was merciful because he stops at Jerusalem. Now, the Lord loves Jerusalem in particular. It's a special city. He loves that place, and he talks about it in the Bible. Uh, he's got a special love for Jerusalem. You remember uh, later on in Isaiah, I think 2 Kings, where uh, the Assyrians are coming in, they're attacking western Judah, and they move into Jerusalem, and they're camped out. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are camped outside Jerusalem. And what happens? The angel of the Lord destroys them. He says, you're not, coming, you're not coming into my city, Jerusalem. And he stops them. But David is so grieved by the death of 70,000 men. In verse 17, he says, Lord, it's, it's I who sin. It's I who have done wrong. But these sheep, the rest of the nation, what have they done? That sounds very admirable, right? However, according to verse 1, it says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So the nation as a whole was guilty of some unspecified sin along with David, and they all paid the price. David's confession. Look at David's atonement, verses 18 and 25. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Arana went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Arana said, Why was my lord the king why has my lord the king come to the servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, the yokes of the oxen for the wood, everything, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. Now the angel of the Lord, who had wiped out 70,000 people, stops at the threshing floor of a guy named Arana the Jebusite. And David is instructed to build an altar on that site to, to sacrifice. Now that's the same site, by the way, where the temple would later be built. Arana, by the way, was not a natural-born Israelite. It says he was a Jebusite. Those were Canaanites. And they lived in Jerusalem, when, and, and that's who David captured the, Jerusalem from, the Jebusites. This guy's still living there. Uh, probably um, a guy who's now a follower of Yahweh, who's been in, you know, guy, is in the system now, in the culture. And uh, he's got a threshing floor there. He's threshing, and he, he offers to give David the, 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 the threshing floor, the instruments to offer the sacrifice on, but David will have none of this. He wants to invest his own resources, and so he pays 50 shekels for the threshing floor and the oxen. Now, 1 Chronicles 21, 25, for you careful Bible observers, says he paid 600 shekels. But that was for the entire site. That, that chapter is talking about the entire site that he would later build the temple on, not just the threshing floor and the animals. And so David built the altar. He sacrificed on it, and the plague was stopped. Just like chapter 21, they had to appease the wrath of God. They have to do it again here. 
God's wrath for sin has never been satisfied in any way other than a sacrifice for sin. It always takes a sacrifice. That's why Christ had to come. That's why Christ came, to die for the sin of the world. It's one reason, because he alone was qualified to, to appease the wrath of God against sinners, only through Christ. And when he died, there, there was no more need for animals to be sacrificed. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Hebrews 9, 24 says this, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. It took Christ, in 1 John 2, 2, he himself is a propitiation for our sins. Stephen read the, uh, the, uh, a little bit of the story, fascinating story of William Cooper, who was a very depressed man, by the way, who was the, music, the songwriter, and apparently, based on Romans 3.25, which also talks about propitiation, Cooper was saved. But Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the, he's the only one who can appease the wrath of God. No one else. If, you've not, if you're here tonight and have not repented of your sins, you've not trusted in him, then you are still under his wrath. In which case, I urge you to do so tonight. One final thing, we'll wrap up. Notice what happened when God's wrath was satisfied in verse 25. It says, thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land. You go back to the similar type idea in, first, in 2 Samuel 21 again. And when, they, when God, they appeased God's wrath, it says in verse 14, after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. The question comes up, can God be moved by prayer? Can he be moved by prayer? Yes, if his people are repentant and right with him, they, he can be and will be. Amen. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, James chapter 5. And the man he's talking about there was Elijah who was an example for all of us. I mean, it may seem strange that 2 Samuel ends this way. Does it seem strange to you, this is how it ends? We'd like to think of David as the great hero of Israel, right? Who never did anything wrong. He was their greatest king, but what we really find as we studied the life of David is a man who, is, who has a heart for God, without a doubt, that's what it says. And yet at times he loses the battle to sin. Kind of reminds us of believers here tonight, doesn't it? I mean, a heart for God, but sometimes losing the battle of sin. But here is what da- sets David apart. Here it is right here. I believe this is, wh- this is what I think really makes him a man for God's own heart. is because he is a man who repents. He gets it. He sees it. It may take him a while at times. He eventually sees it and realizes I've sinned against God. I've got to get right with God. I've got to repent. You want to be a man or woman after God's own heart? To learn to repent of your sins. I say the same thing to myself. We've got to learn to repent of our sins. We could make the case that the greatest psalm David ever wrote is Psalm 51, the psalm of repentance. I really think Psalm 51 describes who David really is at heart, a man who repents. This is what the Lord wants from all of his people. The Lord can work among us if we get in the habit of truly repenting of our sins, as Mike said this morning. If we have that perspective, then... 
God will be moved by our prayers. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We just pray tonight that uh, we would let it uh, sink into our hearts. A lot of questions, uh, Lord, in your word that we would like answers to that we don't always get answers to. Uh, a lot of times we have legitimate questions. Sometimes we're just wanting our curiosity satisfied. But that aside, Lord, we pray we would take to heart the message tonight of this chapter that we need to be people who repent of our sins, who come to Christ for repentance and confession, Lord, who know that Christ is our only answer, our only solution to sin. And we thank you for that tonight. We thank you for the salvation we have in him. We pray for those tonight who maybe don't know you, that they too will find their, this, this solution to sin in Christ. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.